Student debt cancellation has been a long time in coming, and it's very gratifying that it seems like it might finally happen. Skyrocketing prices for higher education and a generation of wage suppression is what created this crisis, not the profligate personal spending of the students themselves. This is a policy that is aimed squarely at the middle class because that is how you build an economy. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. When President Biden announced his student loan forgiveness program, Nick, uh, we knew we had to do an, an episode on it. And the first guest you thought of was Marshall Steinbaum. Absolutely. Why? Well, uh, two reasons. The first is I know a bit about Marshall's research agenda, which has been focused a lot on student debt. Marshall is a, you know, a assistant professor, University of Utah, and, and has done a ton of work and advocacy around this, uh, but also because uh, we love Marshall because he is a flamethrower, much like <laughs> us. And, you know, we just love talking to him. And he's been doing this. He's been talking about this for a while. This has been uh, yeah, part of for his sure, for uh, sure. core subject area, the, yeah. the student debt crisis. And, you know, Marshall is one of the very few economists that we get to talk to who is classically trained, but unconstrained by a lot of that orthodoxy. You know, he was a person who learned it all and then turned it over on his head and said, well, a lot of this just makes zero sense. It's just not true. As we've said many times before, it's internally consistent, mathematically elegant. It just has no purchase here on planet Earth. And as a consequence, he he sees things in new ways. And, and I think, you know, just a deeply penetrating thinker and a you know a super articulate guy. So um, as any listener of the pod must know, when President Biden announced the student debt cancellation, a lot of people lost their minds. Uh, I mean, obviously there were a lot of people lost their minds in a in a good way. Tens of millions of uh, people holding debt, uh, but in the economics profession uh, and the policy policy world. Uh, people had kittens over this in many, uh, lots of our favorite people, you know, just freaked out because, you know, they called it inflationary and moral hazard and, you know, all oh, sorts of crazy unfair. things. It's unfair. Yes. It's unfair to people like you, Nick, who uh, paid your $750 a year in tuition yeah, to go to exactly. one of the top public universities in the yeah, country. That's yeah. right. I know. So unfair to me. In any case, uh, you know, let's just get right into our conversation with Marshall Steinbaum to talk uh, at length about this policy and the pluses and minuses. I'm uh, Marshall Steinbaum, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Utah and Senior Fellow in Higher Education Finance at the Jane Family Institute. And I don't think I have anything to plug other than the idea that student debt cancellation has been a long time in coming, and it's very gratifying that it seems like it might finally happen. So Marshall, uh, so so great to have you with us again. Uh, student debt 
cancellation, of course, is in the news. And here at Pitchfork Economics, we couldn't be more pleased that the Biden administration actually did something. I think you'll agree with us that they could have gone farther and should have. Uh, but we're probably always going to say that about everything. <laughs> um, uh, but tell tell us your give us your perspectives on on the circumstance, the causes, and where we're at. Yes, well, all of those things are right, as you say. It's very gratifying to see this actually uh, take shape because, as we have too much experience with, lots of big dreams get crushed in the political process for no good reason. And it's nice that this one actually emerged only semi-scathed, I won't say completely unscathed, um, but it actually got through to the other side, or at least has gotten through a major potential roadblock. Student debt cancellation used to be a radical idea when I first got into researching student debt uh, and, well, student debt at first in 2015, you know, cancellation wasn't even remotely on the table. Um, that started happening, I would say, around 2017. And this idea that the president could do it by unilateral executive action, you know, took even a little bit more time to emerge. But throughout all of that, there's been an enormous resistance from what I would call the higher education policy establishment, because they're all of the belief that more or less the higher education system works as intended, which is to say, people, students take out loans and invest in their future earnings. And as a result of getting an education experience, uh, a pay increase that enables them to repay those loans. And I've never thought that that was particularly accurate. I first got into student debt because, as you well know, I study the labor market and I was thinking, well, you know, wages have been stagnant. Student debt is mounting up and up and up over time. That doesn't look like a very convincing theory to me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so this is sort of one, I mean, I think the last time I was on this podcast, we discussed all of the um, evidence, the empirical evidence that shows that um, the theory of competition in the labor market is false. Student debt is one big gorilla in the room worth of evidence that shows that that theory of how the labor market works is false. Um, and that's why I got into it. So, you know, I've been kind of following this uh, uh, policy proposal there for a good number of years. And, you know, at every stage, as I say, the higher education policy establishment didn't want to confront the fact that this promise of higher pay enabling people to pay off debt was false. There were sort of other constituencies uh, within the political system that thought that this was a relatively low priority. You still hear even now that, you know, student borrowers are a minority of the uh, population. So why should we be so worried about them? You know, the sort of typical thing of like, there's always somebody who's more supposedly sympathetic of a victim and like we should be advocating on behalf of like that person as, as against student debtors. You know, all of that is a what I would consider to be demonstrative of an elitist uh, political economy that says, you know, people can't advocate on behalf of themselves. Students saying I'm burdened by debt and I can't pay it back should be ignored in favor of the priority list uh, drafted up by elites. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this thing finally happening kind of validates that entire uh, uh, theory that politics is a bottom-up process or could be a bottom-up process at root. And a lot of people who are sort of standing in the gateway trying to prevent public uh, popular demands from being met uh, have been uh, pushed aside. And that is enormously uh, uh, redeeming for those of us who are very cynical about politics. Just for a moment, can we zoom out a little bit and contextualize this conversation? How big is the student debt 
overhang at present. I mean, it's a big number. It's like 1.3 trillion. Isn't oh, it's it? more oh, than that. I mean, more. The to- yeah, the total yeah. amount outstanding is something like 1.7 trillion. Wow. Um, and it's all, I mean, I'm going to say it's all bad debt. You know, some of it will be paid back. Some of it is being paid back even during the repayment pause. And if they lift the repayment pause, more of it will be paid back. But the vast majority of that $1.7 trillion is never going to be paid back. So this is reflective of the messed up higher education finance system that we have. Basically, what happened is states defunded public university systems where the vast majority of students go. Um, that caused those systems to re-engineer themselves as private goods, in effect. So they get much less state funding. Yeah. Instead, they'll raise tuition and soak in money that's all backstopped by federal student loans. And the federal government's view is more people should go to college and graduate school. So they will originate lots and lots of loans on the front end, much more generously than say a, a private bank would absent a federal policy, uh, you know, cause they want to kind of push more and more people through the doors of the higher education establishment. And then on the back end, they'll try to collect the uh, loans that they've issued. And lo and behold, people didn't experience the pay increases that were supposedly going to make those loans uh, uh, economic to, to repay. And so they can't collect it on the back end. So we've had this kind of system where the state governments like it because they can defund institutions and use the money for regressive tax cuts. Institutions like it, especially the fanciest institutions, because they can say, oh, well, we're very elite. Look at how uh, selective we are here. We're going to charge you know, this ridiculous tuition uh, to come here because you get access to the upper echelons of the social hierarchy. So we're happy to be what are, in effect, private colleges, even if we're notionally uh, a public university. And, you know, elite higher ed administrators like that system. And Congress likes it because the federal student loan program looks like a a revenue positive from the perspective of the Congressional Budget Office, because the federal government loans out the money at higher interest rates than it costs the Treasury to borrow it. So the federal government has basically turned itself into a bank for the purposes of student lending. That is, they borrow the Treasury, you know, goes on the market and sells U.S. Treasury bonds for at a low interest rate um, and then issues student debt at a high interest rate. And that looks to Congress like giant increase in revenue. So that enables Congress to uh, pass regressive tax cuts. I mean, that very thing happened in the 2000s during the Bush tax cuts, where the lifting of the loan limits for graduate loans was the so-called pay for to enable regressive tax cuts. Um, oh my God! That, that, I did that, not realize that. Yeah. Uh, oh, shit. I, I, uh, yeah. See, Holy I, shit. I, I never quite wrap my mind around. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, yeah. that so little all, accounting all, yeah, trick. Yeah, and it all starts to make sense now. Why everyone yeah. is so angry that? Oh my God! We issued a 1.7 trillion dollars of student debt that's not being repaid. Oh wait a second, where did we screw up? And then they try, of course, to point the finger at borrowers and say, Yeah, oh, it's your irresponsibility when it's the policymakers' irresponsibility that uh, created this crisis in the first place. Right. But let's just let's just zoom into that because I think it's really really important for folks to wrap their heads around the fact that this is not a crisis of personal irresponsibility, right? Like when I went to the University of Washington, tuition was $250 a quarter. It cost 750 bucks a year to go to the UW. Uh, you know, I could have It'd easily be about twenty five hundred dollars today. Yeah. And I could easily earn that in a summer of working at a McDonald's or, you know, whatever it was uh, and did. In fact, uh, today, that tuition is, I don't know, twelve or thirteen thousand dollars a year for an in-state for in-state tuition. And 
So is it Goldie? It, it, so that's five times. We, we did the math a, a couple of years ago, where you'd have to a minimum wage job. You could you could pay for your tuition at a typical public university by working a mere fifty three weeks a year. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, full time. Yeah, full time. Full time. Yeah. yeah, and that's and and not eating for that. Yeah, right. Yeah. At, at the, fed, or, at or the federal. Rent. Oh yeah. No, the federal minimum wage is seventy seven twenty five an hour. Yeah, you only had to work fifty three weeks a year. So so and so so you know I think again it's what's what's really important to acknowledge is that the deal was that if you borrowed a little bit of money, you would go through college, get a job that paid you substantially more than you could have made if you didn't have a four-year degree and you could easily pay back uh, the loan and it would be a relatively good deal for everybody. And what happened was is that the costs of higher education increased far faster than anything, really almost anything else in, but, uh, in I, I want to clarify this, Nick, Yeah, because it is it is not the cost that has gone no. up. The, no, 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 the no. Cost, that's true. The that's cost the has co gone, up, gone up gradually. It's the price. Correct. There's a big difference between the cost yes. and the price. They are spending marginally more per student than they were 15, 25, 30 years ago. What's happened is that I know in Washington, it used to be yeah. that, and the reason why you got such a good deal was that 80% of the cost was covered by taxpayers and 20% was tuition was tuition and now it's 75% of the cost is tuition and 25% is covered by by taxpayers. Correct. We shifted the cost from taxpayers onto students. Yeah, as we shifted our notions of education from a public good to a private good. Right. And at the same time over the last 40 or 50 years when when the student debt crisis created itself, wages even for college graduates have effectively been they've been suppressed, right? That as we've said a thousand times on the podcast, the median full-time worker today earns about 50 grand a year. If they had been held harmless by the last 40 or 50 years of neoliberal economic policy, they'd earn almost a hundred thousand dollars a year. And again, it's super important to emphasize that this, that this was true of college graduates too. College graduates do earn more than non-college graduates, but that does not mean that their wages haven't been suppressed too, unless they're in the top one or 2%. And so the confluence of skyrocketing prices for higher education and uh, a generation of wage suppression is what created this crisis, not the profligate personal spending of the students themselves. Yep. Well, all of that's right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm, I especially like that you emphasize the price and not the cost yeah. of, of it, because I feel like that aspect is lost a lot in the popular debate and even the, frankly, the academic debate about sort of why is college so expensive? You get a lot of theories about rising cost over time that don't really fit the facts you know, where it's more about the pricing power of institutions and especially institutional segregation um, and financial aid. So so the interesting thing here uh, is, you know, financial aid supposedly makes college more progressive than it would seem otherwise. So the story goes, you know, the, the tuition that they state at, uh, as a sticker price is not nearly what everyone pays. Everyone gets a discount and the discount that you get supposedly is uh, commensurate with your ability to pay. So uh, less well-off students get a bigger discount from uh, universities so they can actually attend. So why are we so worried about the headline sticker price 
as opposed to what people actually have to pay to attend. The fact is that higher education, uh, financial aid, and, and what I would call price discrimination from an economic perspective has gotten more inegalitarian over time. So it's not so much the uh, least well-off students who get the biggest discounts, but rather the students who have better outside options get the biggest discounts, and those tend to be the better off students. So if you look at who's actually getting financial aid, it's the people who the institutions think, oh, you know, they're a uh, uh, somebody who we really want on campus for one reason or another, like, for example, that they come from a uh, advantaged family, you know, they have other options of where they could go in order to get them to come here, we need to give them a nice uh, incentive in the form of financial aid. That so-called merit aid really is about uh, distinguishing sort of who has other options from who doesn't have other options. Meanwhile, poorer students who generally have fewer other options pay full freight or close to it. So there's all these ways that higher education has become more like a business. As you yourself said, the ethos has been transferred from the public sector where it's providing a public good that benefits the population as a whole and that everyone should have access to at a reasonable price towards a private good where it's like, well, we'll charge however much we can get out of each and every student. Um, and, you know, who knows where the money goes? I mean, a lot of it goes to administrator salaries and other things that uh, don't really have that much to do with the quality of the education. That's all very well and good, Marshall. But what about the moral hazard? I mean, these are <laughs> mature 18-year-olds making the decision to go tens of thousands of dollars into debt, why shouldn't we hold them to it? <laughs> you know who else are mature 18-year-olds uh, making decisions? That would be state governors and state legislators <laughs> and uh, members of Congress and the other people who are actually responsible for the policy failure. I mean, the whole yeah. uh, story that I was uh, describing earlier about how state legislatures have defunded institutions, administrators have trans have made have re-engineered institutions to be based on tuition and private uh, payments, and Congress has benefited from the so-called um, revenue positive positive uh, increase in the student loan payment, all of that is the real moral hazard. That is, you know, basically using the misery of the population to serve the interests of the elites who roll over it. And that's where we should be focusing our, uh, uh, our uh, attention and ire and judgment as to the uh, bad decisions and self-interested decisions that led to this uh, current student debt crisis and the need to cancel. Yeah, so so Marshall, you were telling us earlier uh, a little bit about the role that student debt plays in congressional accounting and <laughs> how Congress has played games with student debt in order to give more tax breaks to rich people. Describe that. Yeah, I mean, the Congressional Budget Office forecast in the mid-2000s that uh, increasing graduate school lending, so so for undergraduate loans, you can only take out a certain amount of debt per year, and um, there's also like a total cap for lifetime undergraduate loans that limits the degree to which the, the universities can do what we've all been discussing. So they've definitely increased tuition, they definitely have tailored financial aid in order to extract the maximum amount that students are willing to pay. That maximum amount is limited at the undergraduate level by the statutory loan limits in the undergraduate lending program. Congress removed all of that in the graduate lending program, the so-called unsubsidized uh, student loans, the argument being that professional degrees necessarily will pay for themselves in the form of higher earnings. So in effect, and, and also that they're more expensive to administer the program, so they shouldn't be limited as to how much students can borrow. That's only going to deter students from obtaining these degrees and uh, limit the quality that institutions can offer because they can't charge more than more tuition than the loan limits uh, allow for. If we lift those loan limits and let and let institutions charge whatever they want, 
for graduate programs, then, you know, supposedly we'll get more human capital in the population. You know, the real reason, as you were alluding to, and as I said earlier, is if you ignore the fact that people don't repay student loans, then that looks like a great lending opportunity for the federal government. They're making it's money. a good business. Yes, it's the exactly. profit center. Right. Yes. And and you and universities have definitely seen it that way. So I mean I can just tell you firsthand institutions uh, think, oh, graduate uh, master's programs and graduate education is a cash cow because we can charge whatever tuition and they can take out whatever loans, uh, uh, loans of whatever size to pay for it. You, you uh, professors and departments and colleges and so on, create as many master's programs as possible and market them to professionals in our local area um, so that they we can say, you know, if you come and get this degree and go into $50,000 of debt or $100,000 of debt to get it, um, then you'll get uh, an advantage in your career. And uh, I mean, as I said, universities have taken up that opportunity with abandon. Um, so that's why you'll hear, and, and this is then turned around to sort of blame student borrowers through, you know, like the Republican Congress people who are like, oh, you know, you're getting a master's degree in lesbian dance theory, which sounds like an interesting subject, but leaving that aside, yeah. um, uh, you know, there's, it's like, uh, you know, blaming the fact that people with high balances, um, you know, sort of like wasted their time in graduate school. It's like, no, that's the institutions who saw that as a profit making opportunity and marketed themselves uh, very aggressively in order to uh, soak in revenue on the basis of that. If you get a master's in education, uh, instead of a, a master's in, instead of an MBA, I mean, you deserve to live the rest of your life in debt, right? Because you're doing something useless, like teaching children. Right, right. Yeah. So then it's, I mean, there's th that, I mean, there's basically what I would call the informal credentialization. That was what I was just describing, which is like, let's kind of convince people that they need this master's degree in order to get professional advancement. Then you have formal credentialization, which has definitely happened in the education side, which is you cannot be a teacher unless you have a master's degree or you, you know, you, that the uh, layers of higher education that are required in order to obtain this degree. And there, you know, there's kind of an interesting uh, political alliance, certainly benefit, you know, the universities are strongly behind that kind of thing. And then the workers themselves, in some instances, will think, oh, you know, the more we, the more um, credentials we require, the more protected we are from labor market competition in effect. Um, so we want more credentials because that will uh, protect our wages. And like, to my mind, that's a, uh, a settlement that really screws over workers in the long term. Um, yeah. You know, usually when that kind of formal credentialization is passed, it grandfathers in the people who don't have the credential, but already have the job that they're saying you need the credential for. And, you know, that's really a sort of inside outside game in uh, labor market uh, regulation that I think is, is you know, not uh, pro-social at all. But you can see why it would happen. I mean, in a world where there's wage suppression all over the place, workers want whatever claim they can have to living yes. a decent life and, uh, and, and uh, you know, professionalization in the form of formal credentialization um, can be a form of that. And this isn't just theoretical, Marshall. We, we've seen some studies that have looked at uh, job markets when it's a tight labor market and you see the one, the, yep. the job ads, the yep. credentialing requirements uh, d go away because it's hard to hire people. So now you'll take people without these credentials. But but when unemployment is up, 
yeah, suddenly, then, oh, then, everybody then needs, to, me, yeah, needs yeah. a master's degree. Okay, so I'm going to plug myself uh, for a second, if you'll forgive me. Um, you're talking about uh, papers by economist Modestino Shogun Balance. I did a paper about the Great Recession's effect on student borrowing that basically sort of builds on that um, uh, intu intuition. Because as you say, they show when the labor market was very bad at the height of the Great Recession, then uh, all these uh, credential requirements were put in the job ads to try to screen out people. So basically you have a lot, you can imagine there's a long line of workers applying for every job. The employers are able to pick and choose which workers they hire and they they uh, choose the ones that are highly credentialed. And then the same author showed that effect uh, was diminished when the labor market improved later on in the, in the 2010s. Basically what I show in that uh, paper with my uh, uh, co-author Sergio Pinto um, is the Great Recession had a major effect on people taking out student loans. You know, but I mean, the student debt crisis was already underway before it happened, and as a part, partly as a result of the lifting of graduate uh, loan limits that I, that we were discussing earlier. But the Great Recession definitely made it a lot worse, and the pattern is very consistent with the Modestino Shogun Balance credentialization story, where you see workers say, "Oh, you know, if it, if I need more credentials." to get a given job, then I'll take out more student debt to pay for those credentials. Or alternatively, the same job is only going to be available to workers with more credentials, but and it's the same job, and especially the same salary is only going to be available to workers with more credentials. That means that if you need student debt to get those credentials, the salary is no higher, so you're not going to be able to pay back that higher balance of student debt. And that dynamic is very much at the heart of the run-up of student debt um, in the last 15 years or so. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. So we need to pivot this conversation to the way in which this policy has collided with the neoliberals who have dominated policymaking uh, really up until the Biden administration, because the student debt thing has made certain people's heads explode. Right. And, um, you know, that uh, they're absolutely freaking out for all the usual neoliberal reasons. And it's just fun to acknowledge that the same people who are screaming about the deficit impact, the moral hazard, and the inflationary impacts uh, of relieving a little a bit of uh, giving a break to uh, uh, middle class people uh, have almost nothing to say if you uh, give rich people a tax break. Right. It's just it's just astonishing that w one thing is inflationary and the other thing creates growth, e even though they're the same, but they go to different classes of people. So let's start. Ta let's talk about our friend Jason Furman's uh, <laughs> um, views. Uh, and it, Jason represents, a, you know, I think a lot of people on the neoliberal left who just think this is a terrible thing. That it's inflationary. Explain. Yeah. We're, we're going to yeah. use your your high priced credentials here for a moment as an economist and and tell us is uh, student debt relief inflationary as Jason Furman insists. I no, I mean definitely the policy as announced is not inflationary because on the one hand they're saying well we're going to cancel debt but on the other they're they're going to end the repayment pause. So if both of those things happen, I would say the net effect of that is probably actually deflationary. The repayment pause is more inflationary than the cancellation of debt. That's my two cents. It's you know basically impossible to to you know pinpoint exactly what the net effect is going to be, but the idea it's inflationary is ridiculous. 
the other reason, I mean, or at least one other way we, that we know that the people forecasting inflation are not right is that they were saying the opposite prior to the pandemic. So they were like, at that time, the whole uh, uh, line was uh, student debt cancellation is regressive. So the money would only go to rich people and rich people don't spend money. They only save money. So it would actually uh, be a uh, deflationary transfer because you're basically uh, uh converting what would otherwise have been federal spending into private saving, uh, reducing aggregate demand and thus uh, de deflating the economy. And, you know, I don't think that argument was very good either, uh, uh, you know, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's just the diametric opposite of what they're saying now. And, you know, the reason why they would kind of pivot 180 degrees to make diametrically opposing points against student debt cancellation is because they're trying to tailor their perennial argument and real objections against the actual policy to whatever is the sort of economic flavor of the day. And right now the Correct. flavor of the day is inflation. Inflation. So they right. say, oh, this worsens inflation. Okay. Well, it's not serious economic analysis. It's dressing up um, prior political and ideological views within the garb of, you know, supposedly uh, uh, dispassionate uh, economic analysis. And, you know, as an economist, I find that offensive because it's like, I don't want my discipline perverted to somebody's um, uh, uh, political priorities. What are you telling me? There's 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 politics in our economics. <laughs> I mean, shocking, <laughs> shocking, though it may be. Uh, unfortunately, uh, yes. And I'm doing everything I can to to rid ourselves of uh, uh, politics and economics so we can get back to the one true economics of uh, justifying egalitarian policies yeah. and uh, making the economy work for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Right. But so so let's be clear about who this is benefiting, because that argument that, oh, it's it's rich white people who are benefiting the most. Let's talk about this specific plan uh, that Biden announced. It's $10,000 in student loan debt for everybody earning less than $125,000 a year and $20,000 for those who received Pell Grants, which are grants to low-income students. So is this uh, disproportionately rich white people who are benefiting or is it disproportionately uh, lower income uh, graduates, uh, students, and people of color. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of misinformation in the public debate about sort of who has student debt. You know, the kind of defenders of the status quo want to say uh, that student debt is the province of elites and the broad population of non-student debtors are like the true uh, working class, you know, blue collar workers, and why should they pay for elites to go to college? And that kind of mindset has been, you know, critical, for example, in defunding public higher education, which in fact operated to make higher education much more accessible uh, to a broader swath of the population, you know, could be re conceived as a giveaway to the rich paid for by uh, the working class, as argued by people who definitely are not working class themselves. The reality of who has student debt is. I would say very much in the working class, especially in the young working class. So this, the, the process of credentialization has meant that for younger cohorts entering the labor market, they just need more uh, higher education credentials and thus more student debt to take on any given job. The policy is announced limiting the total amount of cancellation probably skews, you know, so, so I guess the question is who's ex excluded from the plan. People with higher balances generally tend to have a higher incomes. Um, but they're also less able to pay off their loans. So like if you look at who has trouble repaying, it's people with higher balances, not people with lower balances. I mean, there's some 
ambiguity about that. I also think it's crucial to keep in mind who doesn't have student debt. So, so the population of student debtors is very heterogeneous, as I think you're alluding to. Very racially mixed, uh, disproportionately black, uh, disproportionately working class among younger people. What that points to is that the population of people who don't have student debt is even more heterogeneous. Namely, it includes people who, had never, who never had anything to do with college, who probably are uh, at the lower end of the income distribution. And it also includes people who had a lot to do with college who didn't need to take on student debt to pay for it. And that's people at the upper end of the income distribution. So I think the, the, the key sort of indicator that shows that student debt isn't what these defenders of that status quo, quo say it is, is who is more likely to not have student debt? Are the people who don't have student debt uh, working class people who never had higher education at all, or the people who don't have student debt, rich people whose families were able to support them through higher education and potentially uh, uh, graduate school as well. Increasingly, it's people in the latter group. So that belies the idea that uh, student debt cancellation is a, give, a giveaway to the rich. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say is that the uh, income test for getting the $10,000 and $20,000 worth of cancellation is not a great policy. I mean, frankly, unnecessary. And I, I view it as, uh, you know, kind of uh, bowing down to these sort of political narrative that student debt cancellation is a giveaway to the rich and sacrificing the efficacy of the policy to that political imperative because the education department doesn't know how much income each of the borrowers uh, earns, so they need to ask individual borrowers to give them their tax return to attest their income. A lot of borrowers are going to be reluctant to do that, given uh, the um, rightful uh, suspicion about data leakages. I mean, Facebook was caught uh, scraping income data from the Department of Education's website, for example. Um, and just the bureaucratic onerousness, even, even if you didn't worry about the security, just the onerousness of having to uh, give your tax return to a different federal agency uh, in order to prove your worth, that's going to exclude more people who make less than $125,000 who, you know, who, who should benefit from the policy and, and on paper do. Um, that's going to include, uh, exclude more of them than it include, or that, I'm sorry, it's going to exclude more of them than it excludes of people who make more than $125,000 and like should not get the policy. I mean, even I would say, you know, you could have announced a policy that was like, you only get this if you earn less than $125,000 and then do absolutely nothing to enforce that aspect of the policy. That would be better than making people give the government their tax return. Like, I'm not worried about the person who makes more than $125,000 kind of sneaking through the door of not having to, to verify it. I'm, I'm more worried about the lower income people who will be deterred by the bureaucratic process. Interesting. Okay. Right. It was a political expediency, but bad policy. Yeah, yes. And and I should say it's also at odds with the administration's own policy. Just in April of this year, they the OMB issued a policy that was like a directive to federal agencies saying, you know, all of the sort of hoops that you make beneficiaries of federal uh, aid uh, jump through in order to get it, like do what you can on, within the law to diminish those barriers, because we know that that has the effect of uh, excluding people who should be included. That is to say, it's racially disparate. I mean, it's just not a good policy to have these uh, onerous bureaucratic processes to get federal aid. So, you know, the OMB's own policy is, is saying, you know, those should be mitigated to the extent that's consistent with the law. And this is saying, well, basically, you know, we should have these onerous policies to solve our political problem. That's the reason why pre-existing bureaucratic uh, barriers to accessing aid are there. It's like it solves some sort of political problem and so the net effect of that is a less efficacious policy, as, as you just said, um, you know, and they're replicating that exact 
uh, trade-off, I, I feel, with this uh, income test for, for student debt cancellation. Yeah, it also, you know, it limits the cost of these programs in the CBO analysis if you make it more difficult yeah. to access yeah, to, the to access it, but it's like, well, why is that the desideratum of right. what our policy should be? It's like, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> you know, that's that's I mean, yeah. I guess Congress cares about that. So it's like, well, the administration has to care about that to get their policies through Congress. In this case, they don't have to get their policy through Congress, though. So it's like, you know, and, and all of that is just, you know, yet more neoliberal ideology informing CBO, thus informing Congress and so on, which we need to get beyond. Marshall, let's talk for for just a, another couple of minutes about the way in which this policy contravenes the sort of standard neoclassical neoliberal economics. Because at the heart of these disagreements, I think, is the repudiation of a way of understanding economic cause and effect that a lot of people are clinging to and defending. You know, it just feels like that's why their folks are freaking out is that it's it was just like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. If it turned out not to kill jobs, you know, it wasn't the, the policy that was the problem. It was the fact that doing so contravened economic theory in a way that shattered 45 years of orthodoxy. Yeah, I couldn't agree with I, I I couldn't agree with you more in that statement. I think that's really going on when we see these sort of Twitter meltdowns of uh, neoliberal economists. You know, right. it's not even the policy. You know, as as we've been saying, like the ten thousand dollars is not you know nearly as extensive as it needs to be or should be, given how much yeah. debt isn't going to be repaid. It is really about the ideology. The ideology yes. in this case is. I would say meritocracy, the idea that social status is driven by uh, merit, that is to say something that individuals either have control over or is at least individually determined as opposed to inherited. And the higher education industry as it exists, you know, is basically designed to ratify meritocracy. It's like yeah. people of high social status have more higher education and fancier degrees from fancier institutions. And that's how you know that they deserve to be on top as opposed to the fact that they inherited their position. Yeah. And so this idea that the higher education is not serving that function, in fact, it has nothing to do with merit, certainly not uh, sufficient, it, it not doesn't increase earnings to the degree that people are, are able to pay off their loans kind of causes that entire house of cards to collapse. And right. a lot of economists in particular, since they have more higher education than anyone, um, have a lot of, uh, and also, you know, believe the, the, this, you know, sort of theory of human capital as it's put in human, in, in uh, mm -hmm. economics terms, yeah. you know, it's like you can invest in your future. I mean, I mean, we could go into the sort of intellectual history of the theory of human capital, because I think it's informative about, why we see this sort of outrage at the idea of student debt needing to be canceled. But, you know, all of this is, I would say, constitutive of what uh, Beth Pop Berman has called the economic style in her book, Thinking Like an okay. Economist. Like, if you're an economist, then you have to believe the world works in such and such a way, namely that the people who rule over the rest of us deserve that position by virtue of their individual merit. And the way we know what their individual merit is, is their uh, degrees and their uh, status within the sort of hierarchy of higher education. And student debt cancellation just, as I said, causes that whole house of cards to fall down. That's right. In the same way, the $15 minimum wage made another part of it all fall down. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, uh, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, right. I think I think you put your finger on, on it, Marshall. It, it's human capital theory that that is at the heart of this. And it's a, they, they feel the threat. This, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's a, it's a major part of the, the neoliberal ideology. And and people have to understand it wasn't always that way 
our public education systems, both uh, K-12 and college and universities, uh, were established on the theory that education was a public good, not a private one. Right, right. And it's so necessary to bring that up because I feel like the usual response that I get when I say something like the theory of human capital is false, the response I get from economists is, are you saying that education doesn't matter at all? It's like, no, you're no. the one who says that there's only one possible way <laughs> yeah. of it mattering, right. which is that it increases people's earnings and creates human capital or whatever. You know, I'm saying that it is too valuable to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, to be uh, uh, dirtied by your sh- silly theory of human capital. It's yeah. much more important to society than this idea that it increases individual earnings. In fact, it's necessary to live in a civilized world and to uh, have a functioning right. society. Right. And I think I think Amartya Sen makes that that point very well, that it's uh, much more than just increasing your your individual productive capacity uh, and education gives you the capability to do all types of things in life that you find meaningful, you know, for participating in the community, uh, participating in politics, uh, enjoying, you know, arts and literature uh, and intellectual pursuits that go well beyond just your role as a cog in the economy. Yes. Yeah, and I want to I, I emphasize that point and and specify it in one particular way, which is the function of the what I'll call the non-traditional student within the political con- economy of higher education. So non-traditional student in higher ed lingo means somebody who is above traditional college age, possibly not attending full time. Um, and uh, has done other things in life between high school and college, whatever they, those might be, and you know, ha- and you could layer on other stuff like has having a family, having a full time job. You know that non traditional student, the higher education exists to serve them in the sense that they might have intellectual curiosity and interests that would bring them into a higher education institution to vindicate those interests. And those institutions should be structured in order to accommodate students like that. So I'm thinking of, you know, somebody who's interested in getting a degree in history because they didn't go to college when they were of traditional college age because they had to work or whatever reason in their family background. You know, now they can afford the, uh, uh, you know, $750 a year of tuition that um, Nick paid at at UW back in the day, you know, because they want to learn about history. That's great. Higher education should exist to serve that kind of student. They're not, you're not going to serve that kind of student if the tuition is whatever it is, $12,000 a year at UW. Now, even if they're in state, instead, now the non-traditional student in the political economy of higher education is an untapped market. So if you think about institutions thinking, okay, well, we're already getting all the traditional students through the door. They're all going to college because we, you know, passed the law at the state legislature that says you can't graduate from high school unless you go to college. And some jurisdictions have that, Um, you know, we need, we need like more customers. Where are we going to go? The non-traditional student, let's convince that person that they actually need further degrees in order to get a raise on their on the job. And so they'll pay $12,000 a year or whatever uh, to get that kind of degree. So I feel like that idea that higher education is a public good, you know, you can especially see that in the way that institutions treat non-traditional students, whether they're available to them or alternatively, whether that's like a consumer market that needs to be uh, tapped and rung for all that it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. So while we have you, and and we we are going to digress just a just a tiny bit. Can we just talk for a minute about the imperfect yet remarkable accomplishments of the Biden administration over the last two years? Um, because when you put it all together, 
the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Plan, the IRA, the CHIPS Plan, the Anti-Monopoly Executive Order, uh, student debt cancellation. It is an astonishing set of accomplishments. And, and uh, you know, what, what I think is so important to understand is not just the size of them, which in aggregate are bigger than almost anything anyone's accomplished in generations, but more particularly that they are almost all a direct repudiation of the neoliberal trickle-down policy agenda embraced by, you know, frankly, administrations of both parties for the last 40 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely emphasize that latter thing as a major accomplishment. I mean, when, yeah. you know, we sort of like saw the Senate elections shake out in December of 2020, you know, at what has happened since then is as much as could reasonably have been forecast to happen and possibly more given that, yes. that, that balance of power. You know, I work on student debt and antitrust as my two main functions, and yeah. those are the two areas that really do vindicate the point that you're making, that it's not just sort of they've been active, but they've been active in such a way that has really uh, belied the sort of ideology that has constrained previous administrations, and specifically Democratic administrations. I would also say to the degree that the administration has had failures, it's by adhering too closely to that ideology. Mm -hmm. So that would be my yeah. criticism of some of the provisions of the Build Back Better Act that didn't end right. up getting legislated, is that they kind of thought they could sneak those in within the paradigm of uh, neoliberal economics and getting a lot of economists to say, oh, this is actually good for economic growth or something like, say, paid family leave or yeah. child tax credit. You know, there's a, a great disappointment that that was not made permanent. But if you look at sort of the, the the terms in which the argument was made for making it permanent, you know, it was not about mobilizing a mass base. Instead, it was about getting all the economists to say it's a good idea. And yeah. like, lo and behold, all the economists saying that your policy is a good idea doesn't mean that you get what you want. And yeah. I think that kind of speaks to where the politics uh, should go and probably will go. I mean, I hope it's not too late in the grand scheme of democratic backsliding and uh, rampant fascism and everything. To, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I think the lessons of this administration are positive in the sense of, you know, vindicating a move away from neoliberal ideology, that that's how you can be uh, politically successful. Would you have predicted this of Sleepy Joe two years ago? <laughs> um Oh, that's a good question. Would I have predicted this two years ago? I think I wouldn't have. The, yeah, the I student debt have. cancellation. The student debt cancellation was definitely, you know, a sort of left priority within the 2020 Democratic primary. I mean, I th I guess the turning point for me was when other uh, elected officials embraced the idea of administrative cancellation that it doesn't have to pass Congress, um, which is right. I mean, as it's just a legal matter, it's definitely right. That kind of you know, because like what I feel like the administration kind of wanted to do earlier on was say, oh, well, we would have loved to cancel student debt, but, you know, we couldn't get it through Congress or something like that. And in fact, you know, you had Democrats in Congress condemning the bill. I mean, I think that was pretty politically stupid of, of them to yeah. do that. But, but um, you know, you had a sort of uh, backlash in Congress when the policy was announced. It took a lot of work by people, you know, operating very much on the inside to move the idea of executive cancellation, uh, you know, kind of into the realm right. of the possible. And then I would say, especially to get an outside constituency to tell the administration, like, not only do you have the power to do this, but like, if you don't, we will be pissed. 
Um, yeah. There was real constituencies that they care about that said that, that I don't think they were expecting. You know, if you, if, yeah. you know, if I'm going to psychologize the Biden administration as though it were a coherent person with thoughts and so on, um, <laughs> it's like they, they perceived student debt cancellation as being a priority of the left of the party that did not win the primaries and that had a uh, influential but not uh, overwhelming power in Congress that they could, um, you know, just, you know, not implement their priorities. And then what happened was constituencies that are not affiliated with that interest within the party, but do have a lot of sway with the administration. We're like, no, 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 we want this too. You yeah. got to do it and you have the power to do it. So don't tell us that Congress didn't give it to you because you know we're not going to buy that. And they're like, oh, okay, we do actually have to do it now. And I think that was sort of the key turning point. And that happened, I would say, in May or June of 2022. So not all that uh, long ago. Yeah. Um, Super cool. Well, with uh, one final question. We've asked you before, but you can answer it in a different way. Why do you do this work? Oh, I wonder how I answered that before. Um, to make my enemies angry is the honest <laughs> answer. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. It's a perfect answer. Let's just go with that. I love it. So all, all, of the, all of the uh, economist meltdowns on Twitter, that was just like fuel just for my fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, buddy. Well, it was great chatting with you and uh, we'll talk soon, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Uh, good to be on as always. So uh, a lot uh, in that conversation with Marshall, always fun, always informative. Uh, but I think one thing we didn't spend enough time on in that conversation, Nick, uh, is that uh, this is yet another middle out moment from the Biden administration. It is. That, that it's it's not just a policy that is counter to the neoliberal policies that have dominated our politics for the past uh, 40, 50 years. It's also a narrative that runs counter to that neoliberal narrative. Biden has been very consistent in this on many of these uh, programs. This is a policy that is aimed squarely at the middle class. And it is aimed at the middle class because, as he repeatedly says, that is how you build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Yeah. And that narrative shift, I think you would agree, is as at least as important as the economic policy shift. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's just no way to underscore enough how profound the shift has been from, for for example, even Obama to to Biden, right? right? Is that, you know, President Biden and this Democratic Congress have embraced a completely different way of understanding economic cause and effect from believing that if you make the rich richer, you know, jobs will be created and the economy will grow and, you know, everyone will do well to believing on the contrary that, you know, a thriving middle class is is the source and cause of economic prosperity in market economies. And the student debt cancellation is yet another manifestation of that strategy and narrative uh, that these guys have implemented over the last couple of years. And again, as we said in the in the conversation with Marshall, it's it just it's stunning how much they have accomplished. And even more stunning how consistent their approach has been to rewiring the economy in a way that will actually deliver faster economic progress and 
a broader economic progress. Why? Because those two things are inextricably intertwined. That the more broadly, the, the more broadly the policies are, are effective, uh, the more people you include in the economy in more robust ways, the better it will go, which is the core of how to understand economic cause and effect. The economy right. is people, and the better people do, <laughs> the better the economy does. And all the squawking from the right and the neoliberal left about how this is inflationary and bad and debt and all this other stuff is really just cover for the embarrassment of having to admit that the neoliberal framework they've been employing for a generation has just been wrong. And and you and what's telling Nick you, is that you know you can see some of the biggest loudest critics of of student debt forgiveness are former Obama yeah, administration economists right. like Jason Furman and Larry Summers. That's who right. Take who take could have done person. this? Who could they have could done have, this? But they didn't. But they didn't. I I will say. Uh, I, I don't know that it was it, if it was planned, if it was well thought out, but the Obama administration made this possible by changing the way we do student loans from federal uh, guarantees uh, of private bank loans to uh, federal loans that are administered by private banks. Uh, the, the fact that this could be done administratively is because these are federal loans. The federal the federal government is the lender. But. They just, uh, you know, rearranged the deck chairs on the student debt Titanic uh, in a way that they, they didn't uh, imagine uh, being used in the future. They did not That's address right. this. And and I think it's really important, again, to get back to the narrative side of it. It is a different a different way of talking about the economy actually makes it possible to put forth these different economic policies. The fact that he's framing it in this middle out narrative is just as important as what he's doing, uh, not not just because it it helps sell it to voters, but because it makes future uh, policies and, and future rejections of the neoliberal agenda uh, all the easier in the that's uh, right in future years and coming administrations. That's right. And and so. You know, if there's a message to our listeners, it is to take this middle out economic narrative thing seriously. It's not just an alliteration or, a, you know, it's not a slogan. It's a way of rewiring how people see economic cause and effect. And, you know, if you believe that economic prosperity is a is a product of making rich people richer, you will adopt a certain set of policies. If you believe that economic progress is caused by a thriving middle class, you will adopt an entirely different set of economic policies. And that's the name of the game here. And for, in fact, why we have the podcast. So right. go back to our very first episode. It's, yep. it's about storytelling. The stories we, economics is a story we tell ourselves that explains who gets what and why. Exactly. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.